0: Hey, we're going to pray as we get uh, started here and as we kick off tonight. But, um, hey, I'd like to ask a question as we get, begin to pray. Um, we haven't done this in a while, but if I, I'm curious. How many of you guys are, uh, are out of work right now and waiting for the Lord to bring something along? Anybody? Look at this. We've got one, two, three, four, Five, six. Seven eight nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen Why not your hand play out of heart? <laughs> I saw your hands sort of go, you know you kind of got the sense something's coming, huh, you know, yeah, you kind of feel like Quincy you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, he got his this week, yeah, well, you know that's uh. Some of us have been there, but we're not there now. So we can really empathize with guys who are there. It's, it's no laughing matter. Uh, let me ask you this. Anybody here that was out of work recently and, and now you're working? Look at this. You guys, why don't you guys stand for a minute? Yeah, let's, why don't you stand? Okay? All right. Now that's two, four, six, seven, that's eight guys right here, nine guys. So for you 13 guys, that ought to be an encouragement. And, uh, so let's pray for these guys. Because uh, you can imagine what it would be like if you were in their shoes right now. Father, we come to you because you have told us uh, to be anxious for nothing. And that would include even when we're out of work. That would include even when we're not quite sure how we're going to make a, a mortgage payment. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Uh, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Lord, each of these guys, depending on how long they have been out of work, their anxiety level uh, goes up and down. And there are days when um, our trust level is high, and there are days when it's not so high. Uh, for the guys uh, who have some things on, uh, uh, on their plate that look like possibilities, uh, maybe some of them are interviewing, uh, help them, Lord, uh, to remember that you are in absolute control of their lives and the circumstances and the events. Thank you, Lord, that they will not always be in this position. Uh, These are situations we would never choose, but these are situations that once we get through them, we look back. And uh, these are faith builders. And years later, we look back and we see your faithfulness. The the lessons we learn during these times stay with us for the rest of our lives. Uh, I pray for the guys, Lord, who um, today have been fighting hopelessness that you might let them know and remind them that uh, you are absolutely in charge of their circumstances. And, uh, Father, maybe, uh, maybe, uh, maybe their leads have dried up and, and maybe some possibilities that look like they were going to work just 30 days ago are, are over. Uh, that's a very precarious situation. It can lead to despair. Um, we thank you that your power always works best uh, when there's death. Sometimes there's a death of uh, opportunity. Lord, we we thank you that you have not forgotten these guys, that your eye is upon them. Encourage them. I pray that you'd encourage their wives. Uh, Lord, help this to be a time for uh, these uh, husbands and wives, for the pressure to drive them together rather than uh, pull them apart. So, Lord, we again bring them before you. We ask you to work. We thank you for the guys who stood up that have recently found employment. We know, Lord, as the scripture says, that that you are the one who gives us the power to make wealth. So we thank you. Those of us that are employed, we thank you for it. We're grateful, Lord, for income. We're grateful that we can pay our bills. Uh, All of us, our trust is in you. We're counting on you. Instruct us tonight. Teach us tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Philippians, gentlemen. And we are working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And if you have your Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing from prison in Rome to this church because they have written to him and they've actually sent Epaphroditus to him to encourage him. And we're going to pick up tonight in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And here's what Paul writes. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing. Yeah. Who's it? Yeah, Matt. Yeah. Hey. Well, hey, why don't we just do it afterwards here, Matt, because I'm just kind of getting rolling. Is that all right? Can we do that? Well, I, yeah, I guess. If it's that, let me just, no, I got a pin right here. Let me just, let me just sign that. OK. Thanks. Thanks. So there you go, Matt. Thanks so much. Uh, now. Some of you guys don't know what that's about. <laughs> how, how many of you guys know what that's about? All right. For those of you, and, and I was taking a chance doing that. Driving over here, I was thinking, do I want to do this or do I not want to do this? Um, I took the chance. You did that well. Um, by the way, I want that book back. Uh, that's Les's book. For you guys... and. Don't know what what that was about. Um, Week before last, Terrell Owens, who was the wide receiver, uh, one of the wide receivers for the 49ers. Maybe you remember him a few years ago. Caught a touchdown pass uh, against the Cowboys in uh, Texas Stadium. And runs all the way to midfield to the star. And uh, slammed the ball down kind of in defiance. And I think it was George Teague who was the safety then blasted came blasting out of nowhere and, and nailed him. Um, just because George is a Christian. I mean, he, you know, he didn't like that. <laughs> and then he caught another touchdown pass and did the same thing, and Emmett went after him. Uh, well, two weeks ago, he caught a touchdown pass um, in Candlestick Park. Catches the pass, takes a Sharpie pin out of his sock, signs the ball, and gives it. Uh, to his agent. Now, what does that have to do with anything? It's all about me. That's exactly right. Now, with Terrell Owens in mind, let's read those verses again. Paul says, if there is, therefore, any encouragement in Christ, and and the way this is structured in Greek, uh, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, that's the idea that's here. If there is any consolation of love, and there is. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If any affection and compassion, and there is, would be the idea grammatically. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He's talking to a church. He's talking to a group of people. He's not talking to one guy. He's talking to, if, you, know, you know what a church is in a sense? A church is a team, in a sense. A family is a team. Uh, where you work, that company is, is a team. Uh, we're different people with different gifts and different skills and different abilities. And we play different roles. Some of us are numbers guys. Some of us work numbers. Some of us can't balance our checkbook. But we're good with people, and so we're out selling. And others, have, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. We play different positions. We play different roles, just like a football team, just like a basketball team. That's the way it is in life. So when he writes to the church of Philippi, he's not writing to one guy. He's writing to a group of people. And one of the things that he wants to see is that he wants to see unity. He wants to make sure that that they're of the same purpose. Um, I I saw a cartoon the other day in a magazine, and uh, a, a guy had obviously almost fainted And his wife runs up to him, and he says, no, I'm okay. I just had a momentary sense of purpose. (laughs) Uh, We all need purpose, and not just a momentary sense of purpose. Um, uh, We we need to know the direction we're supposed to be going. Uh, We need to know what God wants us to do. And we need to know that he has something for us to do. Uh, Paul is writing to a church. Uh, it's important. It's important that they be unified. Now, I get a question for you. When Terrell Owens caught that pass, uh, that was a remarkable thing. Because, what was that, about a uh, not 25, 30 yards? Um, how in the world did he throw that pass and catch it? Yeah. I mean, that was a remarkable athletic feat. Fact to the matter is, he didn't throw the pass. Somebody else threw the pass. How in the the world did he manage to throw that pass and catch it and also block those guys that were blitzing? Well, he didn't block them. Somebody else blocked them. Uh, You you get the point. It it, it was sure, absolute lunacy for him to catch that pass, take out a pin, and and when they interviewed him later, he said, well, I, I had thought all week about something I could do to be unique. That's what he said. Well, you know, if he'd think half as much about uh, being a team player, as opposed to being unique and having the limelight on him. You know what's interesting? Um, the team tried to present a united front, but I don't think they were united over that. Do you? Do you think everybody on that team liked that? I don't think so. You think all the coaches liked it? Nah. Uh, Mariucci defended him, but uh, he had no business defending him. Uh, but, but he did. You think the linemen like that? Uh, you, yeah, I, I don't think so. Because you see, it's a team effort. It, it, it's, uh, it, it was one guy making sure the spotlight was on him. That's not how it works. That's not how it works in athletics. That's not how it works in the church. That's not how it works. But you know what was interesting? Earlier in Philippians, if you were here for our study last few weeks. Paul talked about two kinds of guys that were preaching. And they were preaching right doctrine. They they weren't messing around with doctrine. They were preaching the gospel. But some of these guys were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Uh, Selfish ambition is the need to lead. Selfish ambition is the need for the spotlight. Uh, Selfish ambition is the need to have people know who you are and acknowledge you. So even in the church, you got guys that, that'll take a sharpie out of their sock. That's their motivation. Uh, they want the applause, and they want the approval, and they want the limelight. That doesn't work. Uh, that kind of attitude, what it does is, uh, it destroys unity. Uh, it is an uh, antidote to teamwork. Um, uh, throughout, throughout Philippians thus far, Paul has been talking about the importance of unity. Now, we need to say this. Our unity, unity is never more important than truth. We we never sacrifice truth in order to achieve unity. Our unity is based on the truth of the gospel. It's very important to understand. Um, What he's going to do in this chapter is that he is going to show us the importance of a principle of leadership that is uniquely Christian. Uh, There are a lot of seminars on leadership. There are a lot of books on leadership. Uh, Every guy in this room is a leader. We're different kinds of leaders. We have different leadership assignments. But you're a leader because, number one, you're a man. That makes you a leader. Uh, I love saying that (laughs) because it's true. God God has called men. To lead in their families. God has called men to lead in the church. It doesn't mean the gals don't have leadership skills and abilities, but in the family, God doesn't want women leading. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy when a woman is leading by herself, when her husband has abandoned the family, isn't it? We, we all know that intuitively. When, when a father dies, we are all very concerned for his wife and for his children. Why? Because they need him. His wife needs him. Uh, God has called you as a man to be on the point for your family. Uh, Years ago I was uh, in the shower and I was thinking about the fact that everything in our culture is set against having a good family. Everything is set against having a good marriage. If you're going to have a good marriage, if you're going to have a solid marriage, one that goes 50, 55, 60 years, you're going to have to get through some things because this culture is set against that. If you're going to have a a strong, healthy family, you're going to have to work through things with kids, and there's going to be disappointments, and there's going to be uh, hard things that you're going to encounter. It's as though everything in this culture is against that. And as I was in the shower... It hit me that a family, I, I kind of saw a mental picture of a family under attack. Um, and that's where I got the concept for the book Point Man. That, that you've got a small family. What's a, it's not a battalion. What is it in your family? Three, four, five, six people? Well, that's like a, that's like a patrol, not a battalion. Uh, some of you guys uh, were in the military. Some of you guys saw combat. Some of you guys maybe were in Desert Storm, or some of you guys were uh, in Vietnam. Some of you guys maybe were, gosh, back in the Korean conflict. Uh, This guy back here was in the Civil War. (laughs) No, that's that's a joke. Um, Maybe maybe you, on a particular day, were called to walk the point. Um, The leadership of the guy in point is critical, because he has to be aware. There has to be a sixth sense. He has to make good decisions. He has to be aware of wires. He has to be aware of snipers. Sometimes with a sniper, you can't see them, you just feel them. A lot of people in DC right now are nervous because of this guy, you see. Uh, to a great degree, the well-being of the men behind you, it's dependent on the guy walking point. Well, in this war that we're in, in America, you're trying to be a godly man with a godly family. Uh, You're not leading a group of guys, but you're leading your wife, you're leading your kids. Maybe your kids are grown. Well, you're still leading them. You still love them. Maybe you got grandkids. Uh, See, that's what it means to be a point man. That's what it means to be out front. That's what it means to be a leader. Maybe you don't think of yourself as a leader, but you're a man. You're a leader. Somebody's watching you. And I'll guarantee you, somebody's following you, you see. Maybe you're retired. Well, I used to have a leadership position, but I'm not a leader. You're still a leader. You're influencing. Now, the question is, what kind of leader are you going to be? You go down to Barnes & Noble. If we took a field trip, if we all got our cars and went down to Barnes & Noble, I'm telling you, there's a rack. There's a section of books on leadership. And there's some good stuff, and there's some not so good stuff. But there's something unique to Christianity. Christianity has a lot to say about leadership. But it's a particular kind of leadership that fosters unity and fosters purpose. And our example in this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This passage is about servant leadership, Philippians 2. Uh, It applies to every guy in this room. Because you see, the danger is when you're a leader, the danger is is to lead by the world's standards rather than the standards of the scripture. And when we do that, we're not good leaders. When we take our cue from the world system and from the culture around us and from some seminar we went to that's not biblical, we're going to get in trouble. And our leadership is going to suffer in some way, shape, or form. And the people that are under us, the people that we were leading, it might be your wife, it might be your kids, they're going to suffer too. Because there's a there's an ingredient that is anathema. There is an ingredient that our culture has an aversion to. Um, let's go to verse 3. And, and it, he's going to nail it right out of the blocks. Do nothing uh, from selfishness or... Empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, let's take verses 3 and 4, and let's take them kind of backwards. Does that passage say that you are not to look out for your interest at all? No. doesn't say that. You are to look out for your interest, but not to look out for your interest only. You are to look out for the interest of others. In fact, that should be the priority. Uh, see, see, here's our hint that we're coming into something that is totally different and totally foreign to what most people think about when they think about leadership. Um, do nothing from selfishness. We've already run into this concept in Philippians. Um, I, I want to I, I show you what selfishness can do. And I want to show you the source of selfishness. Uh, flip over, if you would, to the Old Testament to Isaiah. To Isaiah chapter 14. Now, if you're new to your Bible, and, and you know, it takes a while to find all these books, if you're in Philippians, go left. And if you get to um, Psalms, you've gone too far okay go back to your right want to go to Isaiah chapter 14 Uh, Isaiah there there are two passages that give us background on uh, on the individual that we know by the name of Satan Uh, Satan and you might want to write down another passage we won't go to it but there are there are two passages that give us a lot of insight into his background Isaiah 14 Ezekiel 28 Uh, you put those two together and you kind of get a uh, you kind of get a biographical sketch sort of like A&E you ever watch that show biography well you want to get a biography on Satan Isaiah 14 Ezekiel 28 Um, Satan was uh, Satan is an angel he was the highest uh, of the angels he was uh, the uh, the most beautiful of the angels He he had a position uh, of authority in heaven. Look at Isaiah 14, 12. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Now, it's going to tell us, it's, it's going to go into depth, what happened which caused rebellion to happen in Satan's heart in heaven. Remember, there's no sin. Everything's perfect. Um, but this guy started a rebellion. You know, when Satan was thrown out of heaven and cast down to the earth, and he was, and he prowls the earth now, uh, Peter says, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Not only did he rebel, but he took a third of the angels with him, and eternity passed. This tells us um, the procedure that happened, that occurred. Before there was an external rebellion against God, there was an internal rebellion that took place in his heart. Now, let's just kind of work our way through it. And as we do, I want you to note how many times you see two words, I will. Okay? Just be on the alert for those. It says, but you said in your heart. Didn't say it out loud. Didn't say it to anybody else. He kept it to himself. Something he was thinking. But you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Now, he was in heaven. In the Hebrew mind, there were, there were layers, there were levels of heaven. Uh, what he wanted to do was to ascend, and, you, and you'll see in the context here in a minute. He wanted, to, he wasn't pleased with the position God had given him. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be equal with God. We'll see that in a minute. I will ascend to heaven. Catch this, next one. I will raise my throne Above the stars of God. He wasn't, um, he wasn't content with his assignment. There was, uh, there was an ambition, a wrong kind of ambition in his heart. And here's another I will. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. Well, the mount of the assembly was where they all gathered to praise God. Who was sitting on the mount? God was sitting on the throne is the picture. Is the image. I will, here's the next one, verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, and here's the clincher. I will make myself like the most high. Uh, this guy wanted to be equal with God. Now, I hope you understand he's not equal to God. He's a, he's a created being that God has on a short leash for a certain amount of time to accomplish God's purposes. He's a pawn in the hands of God. The problem that happened with Satan was that uh, he was selfish. It was all about him. It it was not on the glory of God. It was not on um, anyone else. He was the sheer focus of his life. Uh, You guys remember a book that came out about uh, 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago now, called Looking Out for Number One? That's what this is about. Uh, Satan is the originator of that concept, looking out for number one. Good leaders, good biblical leaders, are not in the business of looking out for number one. They are uh, the antithesis of this. Um, selfishness welled up out of his heart. Now, Here's the thing about that. See, uh, that can be in our heart, yet we'll try to cover it. We'll try to cover it. We we will try to uh, massage people. We will try to influence people. We'll try to manipulate people uh, with them not having any idea what our motivation is behind our attempts. See, it's always an issue of the heart. Uh, You've had people work you before. You've had people use you before, haven't you? Uh, You didn't realize you were being used. Uh, What were they doing? They were manipulating you. They were acting as though they had your best interest in mind, when in actuality, they didn't have your best interest in mind at all. They had their best interest in mind. This happens all the time. Uh, this stuff, uh, selfishness is destructive behavior. Uh, destructive, uh, uh, selfishness uh, destroys marriages. Um, selfishness destroys children. When you have a father who... Uh, who's been married 15 or 20 years and decides that his wife is not sufficiently pleasing him or living up to what he thought she would be or whatever, you know, and a guy leaves and gets involved with somebody else, that is selfishness. I I remember... um, Some of you guys know Dawson McAllister, who uh, Dawson's worked with uh, high school kids, junior high kids, for years and years and years. And uh, Dawson had a 14 or 15-year-old girl uh, hand him a letter that he had, that she had written to her dad, because her dad, uh, who was, you know, they were members of a church like Stonebriar. And her dad was a committed Christian, served on the board, the whole nine yards. He... uh, well, he had left uh, his wife and his kids for this other gal he had met somewhere. And she wrote this letter to her father. And uh, you read that letter. It, 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 you, you can't read that letter without tears coming to your eyes. Because she uses the analogy. She said, Dad, it's like, it's like our family is in a football game. And Dad, you love football, and you were a great football player. And, Dad, you've been our coach. But, but, Dad, it's like something's happened. Because we used to love our family huddle. And, and you're not in our huddle anymore. It, it's, it's as though there was a terrible collision on the sideline. And, and, and Mom sprawled on the grass. And, and, and she can hardly breathe. She's so shocked by what has happened. And she went through each of her siblings and what they were experiencing because he wasn't in their huddle anymore. They were lost and they were confused. And she said, Dad, we don't know what's happened to you, but Dad, you're in the wrong huddle. You need to be with us. You need to be leading our family. i am telling you something, you to rip your guts out reading this thing. Why was he not in the family huddle? Why was he not given leadership? Because he was selfish. That's why. And you know what he did? He killed his family. Um, Rachel, my daughter Rachel's 23. I remember when she was 12 or 13, she brought a friend home. And uh, this, this gal had been over the house a whole bunch of times, in and out, you know how kids are. I remember this little girl walked in. She was 12 or 13. I remember she walked in one night, and I did a double take at her. Because she looked totally different. Than I ever. She'd bouncy, jovial, little kid, outgoing, gregarious, happy little teenage kid. Christian home, Christian family, her dad's a pastor. She came walking in the door, and I did a double take to make sure it was her. She was dressed in all black. Uh, her, her, her face was I mean, she, there was no joy, there was no happiness, there was no bounce, there was nothing, no sparkle in the eye always been there before she's dressed in all black she's got black fingernail polish and she's got black lipstick on this little kid and obviously something was really wrong and she was with Rachel and they were going with some friends somewhere and they walked out the door and I looked at Mary and she said you, you didn't hear did you and I go no she said well her dad took off with the organist of the church you know what that little girl was doing? She was grieving. She was grieving. She, I mean, as much as if she was at a funeral. She had been killed. Why? Because her dad, 42, 43, 44 years old, you know. And this guy's a preacher. I mean, this guy was a Southern Baptist who was standing on the word of God. And on the conservative moderate deal, he was a conservative. He believed in inerrancy. I mean, this sucker would stand on the word of God, but in his heart, there was something else going on. Back in Philippians, we're going to get a model of how it is that we are to lead, and it all comes out of the heart. I, I mean, I, I, you know. I hate to repeat myself, but I've said this more than once in here on Wednesday nights. Christianity is always an issue of the heart, always. God looks on the heart. We look in the outward appearance. We can be conned because we look on the outward appearance. But God knows precisely what's going on in my heart. He knows precisely what's going on in your heart. Uh, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Why? Because that kills a family. That kills a team. That kills a church. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Humility. We're going to talk some more about humility. But here's the first tip of humility is in uh, verse 3. What is humility? We get weird when it comes to humility. Because we're we're not quite sure what it means. I remember uh, a long time ago. There's a lady that sang a song in our church. She was a great soloist. I mean, it was, boy, she just, it was incredible. Uh, After the service, I went up to her. I said, hey, thanks for that solo. That was just great. And she said, oh, it was just the Lord. And I thought, you know, I thought I heard you singing that song. Now, I didn't say that. Um, She was trying to be spiritual. I gave her a compliment. And she said, oh, it was just the Lord. No, it was you. Um, What was she trying to do? She was trying to be humble. If someone gives you a compliment, just say, well, thanks. It's not a lack of humility to accept a compliment. Uh, What is humility? I think sometimes we get a little screwy on humility. Let me tell you what humility is, biblically. And we'll see this in a minute. Humility is preferring someone else over yourself. That's what humility is. It's giving preference to someone else. It's not looking out just for your own interest. It's looking out for the interest of others. And therein lies the difference in Christian leadership. And if there's any question about that, uh, we're going to get some examples of what it means to be a leader of humility. Uh, Captain John Orr was a uh, fire investigator for uh, the Glendale, California Fire Department. And uh, this guy just had a knack. This guy, if anybody was in his niche, it was John Orr. Uh, This guy loved what he did. He uh, he, 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 He loved fire departments. And he especially, he had a chance one time to investigate a fire, and he thought, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And this guy studied, and this guy read, and this guy read case studies. He went and got further education. Uh, He got so good at it that he was holding seminars around Southern California on investigating fires and on arson investigations. Uh, He was invited all up and down the West Coast. He was invited nationally to speak when fire investigators would get together. This guy had a sixth sense about fire investigation. He, uh, He was respected by his colleagues and by his peers. A lot of canyon fires in Southern California. Happens all the time. It's Topanga Canyon, you know Malibu Canyon. I mean, it's dry tinder. Somebody throws a match out. Uh, he would come on the scene. In fact, other investigators would call him and say, "John, we got a situation. Can you come over here?" Well, he was a Glendale guy, but he'd go to Pasadena, or he'd go to Malibu, and he'd come on the scene. And he was wa- he'd be watching this. Maybe this thing would be three, four, five, six hundred, thousand acres now. And he's watching this thing, and he's look. He's just eyeballing. All these other investigators are standing around. And John Orr would say, you know, I, th- I, I think this was started over here. And they'd start walking down this direction. And he'd go behind a tree. And he'd pull, he'd pull a rock out. And there was an incendiary device. That was how the arson started that thing. It was like this guy was unconscious. He was a legend. The reason he was a legend is that he was the guy starting the fire. John Orr was the most prolific serial arsonist of the 20th century. He sits in jail in Lompoc, California tonight. Uh, his fire, hundreds of fires, hundreds of fires, millions, countless millions of dollars of damage, four people dead in an old home improvement center in South Pasadena. He had a signature. Uh, he would he would get a matchbox, uh, a match book, and fold it over and keep three, uh, three matches out. And then he had a little fuse. He'd light it. He just had it down perfectly. And this one fire he started because of where it was. Uh, styrofoam. It went up like that. Four people were killed, including a two-year-old boy. When the chief and investigator of South Pasadena got there, guess who was already on the scene taking pictures? John Orr. Um, there's something wrong with that picture, isn't there? There's Because you see, firefighters are uh, guys that are teams, team members. Uh, they look out for each other. They count on each other. Uh, they know that they're not going to be left in the lurch. They know that their buddies are going to... We've, we've learned a lot about firefighters since September 11th. They're a unique fraternity of men that are committed to each other. This guy is a Judas. Why? Well, because he took take out the pen. And you see, in his twisted way, he wanted the attention on himself. <sighs> not much of a leader. In fact, the antithesis of a leader. Now, what kind of leader are we to be, and how are we to do this? This is very simple. We're to look at Jesus Christ. If if your father was not a spiritual leader in your home, how in the world would you know what a spiritual leader looks like? Uh, You wouldn't. You've never seen spiritual leadership in action. Now, if your dad was a spiritual leader and committed to Christ and committed to your mom and all that, you kind of know what that looks like. You know know what that... You've seen it. But if you haven't seen it, how do you know what to do? All right, let's look at verse 5. Here's the example of Christ. He's our first example on the kind of leader that God wants us to be. Uh, Have this attitude. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say have this behavior. It says attitude. Because so much of our behavior is... His attitude, isn't it? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be held on to, or a thing to be grasped. We're talking about the Lord Jesus before he came to earth. But he emptied himself, or he set aside his privileges, and taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, there it is again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself. Let me ask you something. what does humility mean? It means that you give preference to others over yourself. Jesus coming to earth, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, going to the cross. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was in the Garden of the Olive Crush. That's what Gethsemane is. Uh, You remember he was at the Mount of Olives? Well, right next to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Let's say the Mount of Olives is... uh, uh, is is this building. Well, the Garden of Gethsemane is a parking lot. That's how close they are to each other. I mean, it's just I mean, you know, they're a matter of 100 yards from each other. Well, if you go to Israel today and, and you can still see the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, uh, the Gethseme is is a big stone laver. It it's it's got a base and and then it's it's, it's been chipped out and smoothed out, and it's this big uh, bull with another huge stone, a huge stone inside it, a rounded stone. And what they would do, they would pick the olives, they would put the olives in, and then they would roll this stone around and crush the olives. Uh, that's what they do in a Gethsemane. He was in the garden of Gethsemane, about to be crushed. Did Jesus come and get crushed because that was best for him or because that was best for us? It was best for us, obviously. See, he humbled himself, not to do what was best for him, but to do what was best for him. We wouldn't be here if he hadn't have been get-simmed. See, that's leadership. Um, uh, Jesus Jesus became, it says, a servant. Here's, here's which, Here's the mark which makes Christian leadership different from any other kind, it is servant leadership. Are you the husband? Yeah. you the father? Yeah. Should you be leading? Yeah. Should you be a Saddam Hussein in your home? People live in terror of you? No. Why? Because you're a servant leader. Uh, now, some people go to the other extreme, and basically, well, servant leader never gives direction, a servant leader just, you know, Never, never gives leadership. That's not a servant leader. A servant leader is a guy who gives leadership and a guy who realizes his responsibility before God, but he's not looking out for his own interest. He's looking out for the, leadership, the interest of everybody in the family. And he looks to the Lord Jesus and says, Lord Jesus, what do, you want, what do you want me to do here? And the Bible is your guide, you see? And that's how you make your decisions. You're in the scriptures. You don't live like everybody else does. You, you, you don't take the easy way because you're a servant leader. Last week, I mentioned the book, Good to Great. I like this book. And it's a business book that Jim Collins wrote. And I mentioned last week that it's a book that he surveyed some companies. This guy did research that nobody else does. I mean, this guy's a research freak. And he gets this whole team. And they do this stuff at Stanford. And they checked out all these companies that 15 or 20 years ago were just kind of medium average companies. They were just okay, But they became great. And they analyzed hundreds and hundreds of companies, and they tried to boil down these different companies in different areas of commerce. What what are the things about these companies that had rapid growth? And and maybe ones that we're not familiar with, maybe ones that don't get a lot of press. But what are the non-negotiables that they have within them that allowed them to go from being average to being great? And one of the first things they come up with was the kind of leader that they had. They call it a level five, Leader, and I mentioned this last week. But somebody came up to me after we uh, last week and said, "Do you remember the story that they told about the group and what they were going to name this particular kind of leader?" Is the guy here who told me that story last night, last week? Yeah. Tell me your name again. Smith. Smith. I went back and read that because I couldn't. I kind of remembered it, but I didn't. And I appreciate you're doing that. Uh, let me read this to you. This is classic. Because they're doing all this research and he talks about this particular kind of leader. All these companies had the same kind of leader, which they call a level five leader. He says, indeed, we debated for a long time on the research team about how to describe the good to great leaders. Initially, catch this, we penciled in terms like selfless executive or servant leader. But members of the team violently objected to these characterizations. They didn't object. They violently objected. Why? Because who wants to be a servant leader? Because you see, and it goes on, and and some of these guys make their comments because, and basically what they're saying is, well, it it makes the guy sound like he's weak. Nobody wants to be weak. I really like this chapter. He talks about guys that are servant leaders. He's got five levels of leadership. And he's got what he calls level five. But Iacocca also became so enthralled with the spotlight that he didn't know when to get out. That he, kept, he was like Jordan. He retired and would come back and retire and come back. He couldn't give it up because he loved the limelight too much. I mean, it was Iacocca who said, who ran for president of the United States. You remember that? He said, hey, if I can run Chrysler, I can run the, president of the, United, I can run the United States. He loved the limelight, he loved the ego, he became head of the United States Olympic Committee, and towards the end, he started driving Chrysler down. And when he left, Chrysler got in trouble because this guy did not leave a team. He could lead, but he couldn't build a team. They're saying level five leaders uh, don't care who gets the credit, don't care if they're in the limelight, and when they leave, they want to make sure that it's a seamless transition and that they're not missed. That's a level five leader. Can I read you something else out of this? This is good. He calls uh, the, the other guys kind of the ego or the eye centric leaders. He says, in, in contrast to the very eye centric style of the comparison leaders, we were struck by how the good to great leaders didn't talk about themselves. During interviews with the good to great leaders, they'd talk about the company and the contributions of other executives as long as we'd, as we'd like. But they would deflect discussion about their own contributions. When pressed to talk about themselves, they'd say things like, well, I hope, I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot. Or if the board hadn't picked this, uh, such great successors, you wouldn't be talking with me today. Or uh, did I have a lot to do with it? Oh, that sounds so self-serving. I, I don't think I can take much credit. We, we just have a great team here. The guys aren't after the light. What are they doing? They're deflect. I heard something today that Mary Kay used to say. She, she'd say, Take the meat of criticism and put it between two slices of praise. Or something like that. I think she said it better than that. (laughs) Something about a sandwich. But I like that. I caught the idea. The criticism, you got some meat of criticism, slap it between two pieces of praise. That's what these guys did. See, They they weren't trying to be in the limelight. He, He talks about two guys in here, one guy, this is an amazing story. Um, some guy named Mockler. what's this guy's name? Mockler. Hold on a minute. Coleman Mockler, who was CEO of Gillette. Uh, in the '90s, there was a, uh, a raider, Ronald P- uh, Perelman, who was trying to buy Gillette. And Gillette, you know the sensor tree thing some of you guys shaved with that? You know? Well, they had the technology and they just were putting the money in, and Perelman wanted to come in and buy the company out, a corporate raider. And this Machler guy, who was CEO, would have come out with, uh, what did he say? Uh, He would have looked, uh, he he would have made a 44% gain on his stock. This guy would have cleaned up. But he fought off this guy three different times. And he and his team individually called Gillette shareholders and said, listen, in the short term, this would probably be the best thing. But we think long term, this would be the best for the company, best for your stock. We've got this technology. We can't just think immediate, we got to think 10 years down the road. And indeed, how Gillette has performed has been remarkable. Well, what happened is nobody knew about this guy. But Gillette took off, and a few years ago, this is what's really wild, um, uh, Forbes Forbes magazine decided they were going to do a cover story on this guy. And what they did was they got his picture, and they had an artist uh, get a picture of him standing atop a mountain uh, holding a razor above his head, in a triumphal pose, saying that Gillette has conquered. Uh, They sent him a copy of the cover. And his, in fact, his staff got it. They showed it to him in a staff meeting. Um, They were all giving him a hard time. He was obviously uncomfortable. He walked to his office, shut the door, and an hour later died of a heart attack. The stress was so great. He couldn't handle it. He did not want the limelight. He was so disturbed that he would get the credit for what had been a team effort. that had killed him. Another guy named David Maxwell, who was CEO of Fannie Mae in 1981. Uh, This guy turned Fannie Mae around. Uh, They talk about the incredible earnings, how how he changed this whole thing around. And uh, what happened was, after he got out of there, they gave him a retirement package and a compensation package. We've been hearing about Welch and these other guys. But what this guy did when he found out what they wanted to give to him, he wrote him a letter and he said, you know what, I'm not going to take that. Because I don't want, he said, i got enough already, guys. And I don't want any way for that to reflect on what's been done at the company. You know what that is? Uh, that's servant leadership. That's not looking out for yourself, but it's looking out for the interest of others. This has the ring of it, of, of what's called authenticity. How come Billy Graham gets such good press? Does that not amaze you? I mean, most of these writers, I think, are kind of hardened journalists. They're always going after somebody. They don't go after Graham. Why? Because they've been after him for 50 years. And they can't find anything on the guy. Because if you're clean, you're clean. Right? He's not looking out for his own interest he's looking out for the interest of others. Uh, The example of Jesus Christ, uh, willing to do what's best not for yourself but for someone else. So let me ask you something. How are you doing with your wife? How am I doing with my wife? What do people say about you when you're not there? I'm not talking about your critics. I'm just saying, generally speaking, how how do people view you? Are you the real thing or are you not the real thing? Are you a good leader or are you a lousy leader? How does that work? Paul goes on and reveals his own heart. And what's interesting is, well, you can see the description for yourself. Look at verses 16 through 18. He says, and I'm skipping a section that I'll come back to. He says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. How does Paul refer to himself? He's being poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice. Paul's not in this for himself. He's in this He's looking out for the interest of others. Then he mentions Timothy in verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely, authentically, be concerned for his own welfare. Is that what that says? Concerned for your own welfare. There it is again. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself may be coming shortly. He's sending Timothy, because Timothy's the real thing. There's a guy named Dean Gage. Dean worked with me for five years. Um, Remarkable circumstances how we came together. Dean had been president of Texas A&M University um, in the early 90s, and... um, Godly guy. Uh, I mean, this guy is the real thing. And Dean had stepped down because he had taken a stand at a and uh, Ann Richards had tried to drive through a curriculum um, at A&M that uh, was a smokescreen for homosexuality and a bunch of other things that, uh, that Dean just couldn't sign off on. The faculty voted to approve it. Dean vetoed it as president. Uh, and he wasn't real popular. Before I knew Dean Gage, I used to read about him on the front page of the Dallas Morning News. And uh, they didn't like him. Now, the alumni loved him because you know, you know, uh, A&M's a pretty conservative school. But uh, he wasn't a real popular guy. But as he told me, he said, I couldn't stand before the Lord and give an account for passing that. So he, uh, he wouldn't pass it. And he stepped down and uh, wasn't quite sure what God wanted him to do. Uh, worked for a couple years at A&M in their uh, post MBA program, putting conferences together. And then we ran into each other. And, and through a unique series of events, Dean wound up coming on board with me. And uh, we were doing conferences all over the country. Now, now let me tell you something. I'll, uh, this, this, he, he went from the presidency of A&M to working with me, which you're talking small potatoes. <laughs> I think we had a staff of four at this time. And we do this stuff. And I want to tell you something about Dean Gage. That guy is a, I've never seen anyone who's a servant to the degree that that guy is. I I mean, I've seen him under pressure. I've seen him in tough situations. I've seen him in, we've got uh, a truck, half a truckload of boxes to unload, of books to set up for a conference with 1,500 guys, and nobody shows. And I walk in there, and there he is, tearing down, setting up, all by. The guy's a servant. Everybody leaves. He's packing them up. He's UPSing. He's doing doing grunt work. You know why? Because he's a servant. And he's not looking to be in the limelight. An amazing guy. Uh, That's who I think of when I think of a servant. That's who I think of when I think of an authentic leader. I think of Dean Gage. Because I've seen him. I've seen him when nobody else has seen him. I've seen what the guy's like when the pressure's on, and I've seen his heart. Paul goes on and he mentions one other guy, Epaphroditus. See, there's a bunch of these guys around. Uh, He's got Timothy, and then he's got Epaphroditus, who is the guy they sent to Paul. He says in verse 25, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed, because you had heard he was sick. Where he was sick to the point of death he goes on and describes this guy and i'm not going to take the time to read it but epaphroditus was another leader that's what this guy was like now let's go back to verse 12. so we know what genuine christianity is we know what authentic leadership is we know it is the line that divides it from any other kind of leadership there's humility there's giving preference to someone else It's a servant leadership. It's a willingness to take the lower position. It's a willingness to get get simmed. Let me ask you something. Are you willing to get crushed for anybody? Are Are you willing to have your dreams crushed? Are you willing to have all of your hopes and aspirations crushed in order to be the leader that God wants you to be? Because, you see, that's what he calls us to do. And I'll just give you one example. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a very tangible example that on a weekly basis, those of us that are married are dealing with. Nobody wants to get get simmed. Nobody wants to take the hit. Nobody wants to get crushed. But you see, that's what we're called to do. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our model. Uh, Jesus is looking for some guys that are willing to die to what you wanted to happen in order to submit to him and be the man that he wants you to be. Now this can be applied a hundred different ways but are you guys getting my drift here? You say, well, how do I do that, Steve? Well, that's why we gotta look at verse uh, 12, right in the middle. This is the application. You guys, go, you guys go seven more minutes? Can you? I mean, those women are gonna be in there another hour, so we're all right. Don't, don't tell them I said that, Lou. Um, look at verse uh, 12. I'm talking about 12. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in, in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. This is great. Catch this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work within you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you would appear as lights in the world. You see verse 14 and 15? Do everything without grumbling and disputing, You get grumbling and disputing when somebody pulls out a Sharpie out of their sock and is trying to get the limelight. So don't do that. It's not about you. It's not your show. You don't have to get the credit. You don't have to get the attention. But go back to 12. See that phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? For it's God who is at work within you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. What does that mean? Work out your salvation. Notice it doesn't say work for, does it? Because salvation is a gift. It says work it out. Every gym in America, they got a sign up. It says no pain, what? No gain. gain. How do you get gain? By pain. You work out. You work out. You do reps. You do them over, and you sweat, and you strain, and you tear your rotator cuff. It's great. You do all this stuff. <laughs> because no pain, no gain. You, you, gotta, you, you, you work it out. Paul says, work it out. Work, work, it out. work out what? Your salvation. doesn't say work for it, because, because Christ is in you. Well, what's he talking about? Work it out. Apply it. See, he's talking about being a servant leader. Well, how do I do that? You know what Paul says? Work it out. You work it out. You've got a situa- you have got a situation that's different than this guy's situation, you say, and you walk out of here saying, "All right, now, Lord, I want to be a servant leader, but how do I do that?" Well, you work it out. You're—you're you're applying it. You're processing it. You're—I I think the three most feared words in the English language are uh, "some assembly required." <laughs> that puts fear in my heart because. I'm not, now, some of you guys, that's a piece of cake, not me. I mean, I'm in trouble. I'm in deep yogurt when I see those words. Ten, eleven years ago, I was in Sam's Club, and I saw this uh, air hockey thing. And it was a pretty darn good price, and my kids were young, and they had friends there. I thought, you know, that'd be great we put up there in the game room. I thought, I'm going to get that sucker. And I tear the tag off, and I'm getting in line, and I'm standing, and I'm thinking, man, this is going to be great. You know, I'm all pumped up. And I'm standing, and all of a sudden, I went, wait a minute. I wonder if I got to put that sucker together. I went and found the manager and I said, hey, can I buy that? And he goes, no, it's in a box. He said, but it's no big deal. He said, all you do is screw the legs in. I said, okay. I got it at my neighbor's house about 1 a.m. Christmas Eve. I go over there with a hand truck to bring it over, get it into my garage. I open it up and out falls this manual. And it said, some assembly required and an engineering degree from MIT. Well, I didn't go to MIT. I went to MIC, K-E-Y. I mean, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. It took three days to put that thing together. Three days. Did we enjoy it Christmas? Uh Uh-uh. No, we're in there. Try it. Three days. Sam's opened back up. I went back to see the manager to screw his legs in. <laughs> I didn't, but I wanted to. See, that's a Christian life. We've been given everything we need, Peter says, pertaining to life and godliness. He's given me the word of God. Every principle I need in here to be a leader, he's given me. He's given me the spirit of God who leads me into all truth. He's given me the church of God. You've got buddies. We hear Chuck on Sunday. He's showing, see, we're sharpening each other. Iron sharpens iron. You see how this works? He's given me everything I need pertaining to life and godliness. He's given me salvation. But some assembly is required to work it out. How do I be this leader? Well, you work it out. You work it out. You know, and there's not 14 steps to this or 15 steps to that. You just got, you don't know what the heck you're doing, do you? I mean, look at you. Look at me. I don't know what I'm doing. So what do we do? We say, Lord, you know what? I don't know how to do this. I don't have a clue. How how do I do this? Would you show? And you go to him. See, you go to Christ. And you go to his word. Say, Lord, I need And see, that's what gets you on your knees. And and, and you say, Lord, would you show me? And would you rough this out for me? And and, and see, you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work. Because you want to honor him. And you want to be the man he wants you to be. And see, and see you know what's happening as you're working it out? You build muscle. You're, that's how you get strong. You're working out. If there was no pain, there'd be no gain. That's how you mature. That's how you become a leader. So let's keep sweating. Okay? And let's keep going to him. And let's keep getting get simmed. Let's keep getting crushed. Because good leaders get crushed. That's what makes you a Christian leader. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we really don't know what we're doing. We, we've, got, we've got different areas, Lord, that are bigger than we are. We've got issues that are bigger than we are. And we live in this microwave culture and we want to pop everything in there for three and a half minutes and have it come out finished. And it doesn't work that way. Um, we're in a tough deal with, with our wives sometimes. We want to put it in that microwave and come out three and a half minutes later with uh, peace and understanding. and It doesn't work that way. Sometimes at work or wherever, with one of our kids, where we really are in over our head here. So we just come to you. We uh, admit to you that we are um, uh, unsure, that we have fears within. Paul Paul said that. He said, I've got uh, fears within, conflicts without. Paul dealt with insecurities and every guy in this room does. I sure do. But Lord, we come to you. And if we have teachable hearts, Lord, and if we're willing to try to work this stuff out, I mean, we're saved and we're going to heaven. But we want to apply this. Enable us, strengthen us, encourage us. And don't let us stop. Don't let us quit. Don't let us become weary in well doing. Help us to hang in there. We can't live without you, Lord. Remind us of that. And, and Lord, Don't let us get too full of ourselves. And and Lord, if success means that we're going to wander from you, then don't give it to us. We don't ever want to do it. We don't ever want to embarrass you. You, Lord, you know what we can handle. You know what we can take. Don't give us more than that. Keep us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray.